Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to the book of Colossians. You'll probably want to keep your uh, marker in Colossians because we're going to be there for, I'm not sure yet. I haven't written all of the sermons, but I would guess three, four, five months will be in Colossians. So uh, looking forward to learning alongside you what Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. Let's go ahead and ask him to guide our time. Father God, we thank you for your inspired, inerrant word. That you have given us your truth. That we might know you. That we might form a worldview around biblical principles and teachings. That we would place your son in the exalted spot of our lives. That our identity would be en Cristo in Christ. And Father, as we mine Colossians, speak to us, challenge us. As James says, may we not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. Transform us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. I don't know if you are a fan of the Olympics. I am. When the Olympics are on, I like to watch it. And I can't remember a lot of events of the Olympics that I've seen, but I remember one. I wouldn't have known that it was 1992 in Barcelona, but I can tell you that I remember the account well. We actually tried to get rights to show it to you, but I think they were willing to charge us like $5,000, so we decided you didn't need to visually see it. (laughs) This particular event, though, if you saw it, it will come back to your mind. It was a man named Derek Redmond's. He was a runner, 400 meters. He ran for Great Britain. It was the semifinals, so he had already advanced a little bit. He, like perhaps all Olympians, had dreams of the podium. Even some non-Olympians have dreams of the podium. I'm not interested in bronze and silver, baby. I want gold. And so he obviously wanted gold, and he was running a good race, a good enough race to advance, and he was coming around the last bend when suddenly he pulled his hamstring and he went down in a heap. And of course the crowd was stunned and the medical personnel ran to him and he said it was almost animal instinct. He forced himself up and he began to to walk towards the finish line. He couldn't possibly win. He couldn't place. He was done, but he was going to finish that race. And suddenly there was a man in the audience, a big guy, who came barreling out of the audience. You're not allowed to do that, by the way. And security tried to stop him, but they weren't strong enough. And he went through security and he got to this young man. And he said, Derek, you don't need to do this. And Derek said, yeah, I do, Dad. And so Derek put his head on Jim's chest and together they made their way to the finish line and you can imagine the stadium is erupting the race is over there's no hope 
but they're going to finish it. And dad is going to help his son who is limping along get to the end. I think that is exactly what Colossians is all about. Paul is like a spiritual father and he sees a church that is limping. It's a 10-year-old church. Paul is writing around AD 61. The church at Colossae was founded in AD 51, 10 years earlier. To our knowledge, Paul has never been to Colossae. If you understand the life of Paul, he went to major cities. Maybe he went to Laodicea, that would be 10 miles away in Turkey. Or Hierapolis, 16 miles away, bigger centers. That's what Paul did. He went to big centers, hoping that if he preached the gospel there, it would then seep out into the countryside. Paul never went to Colossae. Colossae is a church that was founded by a man named Epaphras. We'll read about him in chapter 1 and chapter 4. And Paul knows Epaphras, but he doesn't know anyone, as far as we know, in the church at Colossae. How does Paul know Epaphras? They were cellmates. That's where I get my best friends as well. They were cell buddies, right? Why were they in jail? Because of the gospel. They were so committed to in Christ, in Christian, in Jesus living, that they were in prison together. In fact, when Paul writes the epistle to Colossians, he's in prison again. He's got frequent friar miles in prison. He's in a prison probably in Ephesus writing the letter to Colossians to people he has never met. And in this letter, we are told to be in Christ and Christo. This is the most Christ-centered letter, most Christ-centered book in the Bible. Now, some might push back and say, no, 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 that's John. I would argue on a verse-by-verse basis, this is the most Christocentric, Christ-centered book in the Bible. We are told to walk in Christ, live in Christ, worship Christ. We are told to gain our identity in Christ. It is all about Christ being lived out through us. Very typical is Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, walk in who? Walk in Christ. Rooted and built up in him. That is in who? Rooted and built up in Christ. Established in the faith. That is the word of God. Who wrote it? Christ. Just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So here we have this church that is limping along. Why are they limping? They're limping because false teachers are infiltrating the church at Colossae. Now, if you've ever done any background study on the book of Colossians, you know that everyone agrees that there are false teachers infiltrating the church. But not everyone agrees on exactly who they are. I think most people who don't agree with the view I'm going to say would say that there's only one set of false teachers and that all of the characteristics of these false teachers, some Jewish characteristics and some Gentile characteristics are folded into one. The difficulty with that view is we have no historical evidence of false teachers 
around AD 61 that teach from both a Gentile, especially Greek point of view, and a Jewish Old Testament law point of view simultaneously. In other words, they have created a false teacher model that we have no evidence exists. I think what's logical is that we have two sets of false teachers attacking this 10-year-old church, Christ followers who've been walking with the Lord 10 or less years, and the church is now limping along, and Paul intervenes. So who are these two groups? Well, I think the group that's attacking the Gentiles are proto-Gnostics. Proto means incipient, beginning. Gnosticism is a mystery religion. It's really going to have its heyday in the second and third century, but it is just beginning. And I think we have some of this beginning false teaching that is creeping into this church. And what Gnostics teach is, is that Jesus is insufficient to save. He's insufficient because Jesus could not have been flesh. Because Gnostics believe that corporality flesh is sinful. And if Jesus is flesh, he is sinful and therefore incapable of dying for us. So he can't be man. And if Jesus is not man, he didn't die for us. And you and I are lost in our sin. So the mystery religions would say Jesus is of no eternal value. In order to be saved, you need to get into the mystery religions, get your identity from the mystery religions, and then at the end of your life, if you're lucky, you might have become divine enough to save yourself. It's all about self-saving. The second group, I think they're Judaizers. Judaizers is a term probably from the 1960s. It's not a biblical term, but it describes a biblical group. There were individuals who were Jews who said, Jesus did not fulfill the law. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, he fulfilled the Levitical law, the 613 laws for us. Therefore, we are free from the, the Levitical laws. He has done it for us. They would say, no, no, no. Jesus can't do that for you. You got to do it yourself. It's all about works. If you're a male, you better have been circumcised on the eighth day after your birth. If you're a male or a female, you need a kosher kitchen. You need to follow the, the ceremonial laws. They're ceremonial laws even today. We call them Yadalim. I saw them last week in Israel. If you're in a particularly orthodox part of Israel, 90% of Israel is secular does not believe in God at all, 90%. That's true. That's a fact. But if you're in the area of the Haradim, like Jerusalem, there are 700,000 Haradim in Israel, about 13% of the population. You will go to the sink and you will see a little cup. I always laugh at this because the little cup is actually chained. They don't trust one another. Someone's going to walk off with their little cup. So the little cup is 13 ways to wash your hands. It has nothing to do with hygiene whatsoever. It's ceremonial, extra biblical laws to ceremonially clean yourself so at the end of your life you may be good enough to get into the presence of God. 
That's the second group. They've infiltrated the church. Both groups are giving the same message. Jesus is insufficient. His atonement is insufficient. It's what you do. It's what I do. And if we don't do enough, there is absolutely no hope for us. And Paul responds now. You want hope. You want faith. You want salvation. It's in Christo, in Christ. That's your identity. And that's what the book is all about. One last thing. Ancient Colossians, oh, one last thing for my introduction. Don't get too hopeful. <laughs> Ancient Colossi has never been excavated. It's a 500-acre site, and right now they're surveying it for the first time. It started in 19, or excuse me, in, in 2021. And the guy who's doing it, Dr. Yoder, uh, Joe Aldridge from our church, uh, on my behalf, he wrote and Ask Dr. Yoder if he could send us some pictures, and he actually sent us these. This is the guy who's doing the first excavation, or actually a survey, a precursor to an excavation. So we're not going to have any archaeology as we study this book, because we're a decade away from anything being published. But we'll get some archaeology from other areas, other digs in Turkey that will help us to understand the text. Well, with this introduction... I want to read from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Listen to God's word. Paul, an apostle, that is a sent one, of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, that's his younger sidekick that Paul is mentoring, to the saints, that is believers, and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace, not something you can earn. It's something given to us that we don't deserve. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now listen to this triad. We see this triad elsewhere in Scripture, but not quite in this order. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, that is, you're standing firm on the biblical teachings, and of the love that you have for the saints. So you're standing firm on the biblical teachings, but your attitude is one of love because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, your eternal security. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, salvation by faith in Christ alone, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace, what you don't deserve, of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras. He's the guy who founded the church. He was the cellmate of Paul's. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And he has made known to us your love in the spirit. So as you and I begin, I think Paul lays out for us characteristics that every healthy church, every healthy Christ follower needs in our lives. He begins really with the gospel. And the gospel is not something we do. It's something that's been done for us. It's Jesus who sees us in the midst of our sin, who takes our sin upon himself for our sake. He who knew no sin became sin for us. 
that through him, through faith in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. I love the way Luke puts it in Acts 4.12. He said, and there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name by which men give, by which men are saved. It's only through Christ, in Christ, faith in Christ, by which you and I are saved. If you're here today and you have not believed in Jesus, make today the day when you say yes I accept Jesus. I ask Jesus to come into my heart to cleanse me of my sin. Give me eternal life. The gospel is extended to all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But it is only effectual for those who by faith receive Jesus as savior. It'll have no positive effect in your life unless you, I, we believe Individually, in Christ and Christo. What does in Christ mean? It's like being in the witness protection system. Just for the record, I have not been in it. But in the witness protection system, as I understand it, they give you a new home, a new job, a new identity. The old is gone, behold, the new has come. That's what it means to be in Christ. That's what it means to understand the theme of the book, if you have believed in Jesus, if he is your Savior and Lord, you, I, we are in Christ. We have a new identity. And our identity, more than anything else, is in Christ. Our identity is not primarily our spouse or our children or our grandchildren. It's not our recreation. It's not our pursuits. It's not our job. It's not our bank account. It's not our recreation. If we know Christ, our primary identity is Christ. And that's what Paul wants us to walk away with. We are in Christ. The early church, some of them understood this well. I don't know if you've ever been in a catacomb. I don't even know if you know what a catacomb is. But a catacomb is a place where many were buried underground. It's also a place where a lot of the early churches met. Sometimes people say, well, the early church met in homes, so we ought to meet in homes. Well, that's a nice thought, but it has nothing to do with Scripture. you got to remember that until 326, the Edict of Milan, under Emperor Constantine, there were no church buildings because it was against the law. So people met wherever they could, hiding. And so many met in the catacombs, the, the tunnels underneath where people were buried. The most famous catacombs are outside of Rome in the Appian Way. If you've been there, it's remarkable. And if you go there, go in the heat of the day. When it's 90 degrees outside, and you go down at 60 degrees inside. And it's not creepy. You don't get to see any bones. Sorry. It's not creepy. Actually, most of the bones were taken out a long time ago. But what you can see you can still see some little markers. We would today call them like tombstones, tomb markers. But they're very, very small. In fact, they're large enough to have one or two words. So I've got to ask you. You die. I'm sorry, now we're getting morbid. You die, or you're preparing for death. What do you want on your tombstone? You get one word, maybe two. Well, I think naturally, probably some of us would like our name. I don't know about you, but when the family drops off flowers, I don't want them to drop it off in the one next door because they don't remember where I am. 
Jeff Hines, flowers here. All right, four words, just flowers here. A lot of individuals put their names, but a lot didn't. They wrote en Christo, in Christ. They forwent their names, they forwent any dates, and their identity is in Christ. Identity matters. I wonder what your identity is. I know what my identity is. My identity would be wrapped up in things like this. I'm a husband. I'm lucky I'm married to Betty Ann. I'm a father. I love my kids. I'm a grandfather. Enough said. That's like my life. I'm a pastor. I love being a pastor. I'm a brother. In Israel, I got to room with my sister, my middle sister, the entire time. We hadn't been together, just the two of us, for eight days since... She got kicked out of the house. My parents only have one good kid. <laughs> Maybe turn the, the tape off, please. <laughs> That's not really true. But we had a wonderful time. I'm a brother. I'm a son. I'm a really lousy golfer. Those are the aspects of my identity. But if I know Jesus Christ, there's something that's far more important. In Christ. In Christ is the identity above all else for a follower of Jesus. That's what Paul wants us to take away. Our worldview ought to be shaped by the teaching of Christ. Our priorities. What we do with our possessions, our time, our talents, ought to be driven by Christ. Above our desires, our recreations, our pursuits, our families, our jobs. We are in Christ and that ought to drive how you and I live. That's part of being in Christ. Identity matters. And if you know Jesus, your identity more than anything else is you belong to him. You are in Christo. You are in Christ. I am in Christ. And we need to live like it. Part of living like we are in Christ as our prayer lies. Look at verse three. It's remarkable. Now that you know the setting, verse three is remarkable. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. He doesn't know them. He didn't plant the church. As far as we know, he's never been in Colossae. And he's praying. He's praying for them. And I've got to ask myself, who am I praying for? Who are you praying for? What are we praying about? How are we getting to know God through prayer? Maybe we're praying for a spouse or children or grandchildren. Maybe we're praying for a neighbor or coworker who doesn't know Jesus. Maybe we're praying for the opportunity to use the giftedness that God has entrusted to us for the kingdom. What are we praying for? Paul, who doesn't even know these people, writes an epistle, the first two chapters, orthodoxy, how to think, the second two chapters, orthopraxy, how to live. But he doesn't only send them a letter, a very precise, spirit-written letter, but he lifts them up. He's praying for them. That's what it means to be in Christ. Prayer is the power that God allows us to access through the Spirit, to unleash the Spirit to do His work. I remember when I was a young boy, 
The years were 1972, 1973, and 1974. For those three years, I lived in Oakland, California. I'm a baseball fan. Now, if you're a baseball fan, and you lived in Oakland in 1972, 1973, and 1974, those were good years. They won the World Series all three years. I was there. They were led by Jim Catfish Hunter and Reggie Jackson. And then after winning three World Series, those two were wise enough to move to New York just before I got there. And I became a Yankee fan because those were my two favorite players. And they had gone from Oakland over to New York. And I grew up then the rest of my childhood in New York. Well, in 1972, during the World Series, on a school night, no less, we were going to have the second game ever played at night in the World Series. The year before they had had one, this was going to be the second. We don't realize that because all the games are played at night, but they didn't used to be. So this was the second one. It was a school night. And, you know, I begged mom and she said, sure, I'll write you a note tomorrow. You can sleep in. And I thought, well, that's one down. I don't, we push for two. Mom, can I bake some cookies to munch on while I watch this game that I hope goes 23 innings? She said, sure. So I got out the flour and the sugar and mixed in the eggs and the milk and the butter and then just like two bags of Toll House chocolate chips because one bag is insufficient for cookies. And I mixed it all up and I put the oven on and I set the timer and, you know, put out the little cookies and shoved it in and, and then the dinger went off and I could hardly wait and I pulled it out and it was awful. They were like this thick. I mean, they were like a millimeter high. I had forgotten one small ingredient. It looks like flour. One little teaspoon of either powder or soda. Who cares? I had forgotten it. And it was a wreck. Prayer is the powder or soda. Flat sermons are preached without prayer. Flat evangelism happens without prayer. Flat ministry occurs when we try and do it on our own without prayer. Paul is not only going to write a theological tome, the first two chapters, and a practical tome, the next two, but he's going to be praying that God does something remarkable in this church. That they that we are drawn to be in Christ livers. A healthy church Healthy Christ followers are praying individuals. They're praying individuals. But not only do we pray, but we ask God to develop character. Look at verses 4 and 5. It has a triad or triad, right? Faith, love, and hope. Let me read verses 4 and 5 again. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Faith is reading God's word and taking it as truth and creating a worldview based on what scripture says. You can imagine how difficult that was in the ancient Roman and Greek world with a Roman pantheon, a Greek pantheon, with the Roman army that has vanquished you and all sorts of immorality and a lack of ethics. 
It was dark then. It's getting dark now. And yet we're told to stand firm on the word of truth to, to build our worldview based on Scripture. If we do that, we're probably going to be under attack. How do we define a woman? We have a Supreme Court justice that says you cannot define a woman in any way, shape, or form that is biological. How do we define pronouns? God says, male and female, I made them. Male and female, I created them. Actually, both of those are not only good biology, they're good theology. But if you believe a woman is a woman and you believe that God created us male and female, which is good biology and good theology, you might be called a bigot. And I don't say that to rile anyone or for you to be angry. I say it because faith is standing on the word of God. It is forming a worldview based on the truth of Scripture. But notice the second one. It's not just faith. It's love. You see, this is where some Christians, I think, get it wrong. We become angry and bombastic and militant and critical. And people are doing this to us. Paul says you live out your faith with love. You remember what he said in Matthew 22, 37 to 40? He said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind. And the second commandment is likened unto the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. Then he says something astounding, right? He says all of the law and the prophets hang on this. Hang on what? Love. That is you want your orthodoxy? Good. Live it out with an attitude of love. Not an attitude of bigotry and hatred and mean-spirited and what they've done to us and critical. Live out your faith with love. If you do that, you're going to be criticized on both sides. Some Christians will say, oh, you're, you're a compromiser. They've got their own little echo chamber, and if you're not angry and you're not bitter and you're not mean-spirited, you're not orthodox. But that's not true. The Bible says, form your worldview on what Scripture says, and then live it out in an attitude of love. Remember what Jesus said in John 13? He said, beloved, this is how they're going to know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So it's not just orthodoxy. It's orthopraxy. It's the attitude in which we live out our worldview. And then he gives us the third member of the triad, or triad, and that's hope. And this is really encouraging. This hope is the gospel. He's essentially saying what Peter says, this is not your home. You and I are strangers and aliens passing through. Keep your eyes on the prize, which is eternal life with God. And notice where he says it's kept. Don't miss it. It's kept for you in heaven. Now think about the context. They got two sets of false teachers who are saying, you got to do more. It's up to you. If you don't do enough, you're not getting into heaven. It's all on you. 
And Paul says, keep your eyes on the prize, the hope of eternal life that's kept for you in heaven. It's not me trying to reach up to God. It's God reaching down and holding on to me. That's incredible. No wonder Jesus said in John 6, he said, my father who has given me these souls, how many shall I lose? None. Let me read it to you. John 6, 39, it says this. And this is the will of him, God the Father, who sent me, Jesus, that I should lose none of those given me, but raise them all up on the last day. How many is Jesus going to lose that are true believers? None. You know what the Christian walk is like? It's not quite like this. Maybe yours is. That's what it's like. It's you and I striving and living for Jesus and then we, we mess up and we confess, agree with God, repent and the power of his spirit turn from it and we take the next step and we take the next step and that's part of the hope. In fact, Paul tells us that the hope that we have is not only kept for us in heaven but we have validation here on earth. He tells us in verse 6, the validation is fruit. He said that in Galatians 5, and 23 too, right? We call it the perseverance of the saints. The fruit of God's spirit in us. The fruit of the spirit is. It doesn't say might be, could be, should be, ought to be. It says the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. In other words, how do we know that we belong to the Lord? There's fruit. If you've been walking with the Lord any length of time, it's going to go like this, but there's going to be some fruit. If you've said a sinner's prayer 10 years ago and there's absolutely no fruit, I don't want to give you any false security. You need to believe in Jesus. You remember what Jesus said. Some are going to come to me on that day and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, Depart from me, I never knew you. How do we know that our salvation is kept by God for us in heaven? Fruit, transformation. Oh, some people are like this. Some are like this. Most of us are, are like this. But if in a very long period of time we see no change, don't put your security in that. There should be some fruit in your life. And how do we help ourselves get fruit? Well, that's verses 7 and 8. We find mentors. Mentors needed. Let me read 7 and 8 again. It says this. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, you learned it from him. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. What Paul is saying is this. You want to be in Christ, you want to grow in Christ, look for a mentor. It might be a mentor from afar, it might be a mentor close. It's someone who is a little further along in one's walk and you say, man, I know they're going to mess up, but when I grew up, I want to be like them because they mess up a lot less than me. What did Paul say? He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ because he knew he was going to mess up. We're always looking for mentors in our walk. It might be someone formally a mentor, or it might be I'm just watching someone, an Epaphras, a, a woman, a man who 
is further along in their walk and I see characteristics in their life and I say, I need to be like that. They spur me on to take the next step in my relationship with Jesus. What does it mean to be in Christ and Christo? First, you got to know Jesus. You got to truly believe in Jesus as personal Savior and Lord. Second, you, I, we need our identity to be about Christ. Our identity is more about Christ than our family, our job, our bank account, our recreation, our pursuits. To be in Christ is to make Christ the pinnacle of our life, to be in Christ. How do we do that? Verse three, we start praying. Not just for ourselves, we pray for others. Some of you follow the little acronym in prayer, ACTS. You adore, and then you confess. Then you have thanksgiving and supplication. It's pretty good. I prefer cats. I like confession first because Psalm 66, 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, you will not hear me. So I need to confess up because I want God to hear the rest of my prayer. So I go confession, adoration, thanksgiving, supplication. And we pray not just for ourselves, but we pray for one another. If we want to be in Christ, it's character development. We form a worldview based on the faith that we see in the word of God. And then we live it out with love. And we remember that our hope and destiny is not here. It's kept for us in heaven. And we even see little bits of fruit which encourage us, knowing that the Spirit is working in and through us. And we look for mentors, Epaphras-like women and men. And as they imitate Christ, we imitate Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ. That's what the book is all about. We need to be en Christo, in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, uh, a tall order to live with our identity more about Jesus than about ourselves, more about Jesus than about our wants, more about Jesus than our relationships, more about Jesus than our recreation. Father, help us to live in Christ's lives, to take the next step, forming worldviews that are biblical, living them out with love, knowing you through the word and prayer, observing mentors close and far, character building. Father, allow us to be in Christo churches, a church and in, Christ, in Christo Christians. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.